Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and sitting across from me in a surprisingly jam-packed living room are Jack Hahn and, and Mike Vail. Mike, Jack, what's going on? I've never asked two people that at the same time. It's usually a one-on-one. This is a, an honor to be here. I'm really overwhelmed right now uh, in the illustrious company of everybody here. Yeah, for me, uh, it's my third time uh, on the PDO Cast, first time in studio, so big honor. That's not true. We did a, we did one together. I guess in studio, but we did one together in a in like a McGill yeah like satellite conference studio. room. No, like the real deal here. Yes. Um. So you guys are in town for the Vancouver Hockey Analytics Conference. Uh, Jack, you're you're presenting this time, right? You did last year as well. But are you, yeah, are you actually yeah. doing something this year? Or are you just here to drink beer? And no, I'm, I'm actually doing presenting original research. So can you? Um, Give a little spoiler to people yeah, on, sure. what, on what it is. Um, I don't want to spoil your full thing. I mean, I want people to watch it, of course. But. Yeah, so, so the title of my presentation is uh, Can Corsi Be Coached? And, you know, I've been working with uh, the McGill Martlett um, women's hockey team for the past three years. And, you know, unlike most other analytics guys who work for teams, I report to the head coach just because we don't have a front office. Like, it's, everything runs through our coaching staff. And... You know, Corsi is is a thing that we know, you know, players are either good or bad at, right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of, the, the, the consensus is you go out and you, you try to buy players with good Corsi and try to get rid of the ones who, who don't, right? Right. But, you know, after three years, I, I've kind of realized that there are certain things that coaches can do to, to put their players in a better spot to, to actually help them um, control more shots when they're on the ice. Mm-hmm. So... Um, like what? Well, I'm just tactical things um how not only how they want their players to play but also how they give feedback and how they make adjustments Mm -hmm. so you know like coaching effects is something that i don't think many people have attempted to really dig into but um you know given my proximity like I, i can sort of not only understand the process behind it but also have some metrics right that that we track throughout a season to see okay like you know, we start the year at 52%, and then we end at 65%, which is actually exactly what we've done for the past two seasons. So yeah. how, how do we do that, right? Because our players didn't magically get better. We didn't make any trades because we can't make trades. 
So how did that happen? And how has that happened for the past two seasons? Hmm. So it was a big topic uh, at the Sloan conference last week was sort of um, quantifying the effects of, of, of line mates and of teammates and how certain situations influence performance. And obviously we have stuff like, you know, with or without you metrics that kind of show if the player is a certain drag on his teammates or, or if, um, you know, just based on like how it's working with who's playing with who. But I think that there's also just like a stylistic uh, component to it that might not necessarily be in the numbers, but like depending on who's like, if you're playing with someone compared to someone else, you might just be playing a completely different game. And that probably also influences things. Sure. I I mean, you know, every player has a different profile. Like, you know, if you just look at um, something that I would use a lot is, um, you know, looking at exits and entries, which I know that you've done, especially for defensemen, right? Yeah. It's very rare that you have a guy on a team or, or a girl who's good at every facet of the transition game. It's very rare. You, yeah. you might have one or two. So everybody's good at something and, and not so good at other things. So how, how can you maximize that or, you know, what matters more, relatively speaking? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's something I've been digging into with, you know, some interesting findings. So you know what I'm, I'm fascinated about? Um, I forget who brought it up on, on Twitter the other day, but it's the idea of whether um, the ability to rush the puck, especially for a defenseman, is... Uh, a skill that's sort of fading in the NHL where, I mean, like you saw last year, for example, something that made the Penguins so successful was their ability, not necessarily to skate fast, but just play fast in terms of just moving the puck from one end to the ice quickly. Obviously the puck can travel faster via pass than if one guy is just skating it out by himself all the time. Like, do you think that that's a skill that is still relevant in today's NHL? Or do you think that just puck movers, like especially for defensemen is uh, a more sought after skill? I mean, I think it's it's a little bit paradoxical. And I think Gus uh, Katsaros yeah, was the one I think who, that's actually, yeah, yeah, I think he brought it up. And, and he was talking about it. And, and my response was, um, you know, I think it's getting harder and harder for us to see that skill because, you know, teams are, betting, are playing with better structure and the guys who can't rush the puck are being phased out. So mm-hmm. when everybody's good, it looks like everybody's just bleh, you know? Right. Yeah, I guess it's kind of tougher to separate yourselves yeah. from, from other guys. Um, Mike, get in, get in here, man. You're uh, you're also sitting in on this conversation. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the, let's talk, talk a little bit about the penalty kill. I think I think yeah. that's something that I've been uh, focusing a lot on lately, and that's something that's right up your alley. Um, it's like my favorite thing in the world. What do you What do you think about the idea of how we um, combat against teams that are going with the four forward one defenseman approach on the power play? Like, what do you think is the best way to approach defending that? Um. I, I think like the biggest thing that I've been a big fan of when it comes to that transition has been like a more aggressive penalty kill. Mm-hmm. And I think predominantly um, along the lines of like the, the wedge plus one, like the transitions into a check press. But more importantly, I think it starts first and foremost with player usage and picking like your best players as opposed to specialists because they're quickly becoming the way of the dinosaur. And uh, if you know, you're enabling those players and putting those position, those players in a position to succeed, obviously you're going to probably generate more offense and you're going to take advantage of it because, you know, you know it's always been t- discussed that if you have four forwards out there, you're likely going to give up something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the net gain is always going to be there. I know you mentioned that on right. the last podcast with Dello. But um, if you put guys out there like a, a Lars Eller or a Michael Backlund, who's really good at that, or you start doing a lot of things that like Carolina's been doing this season, um, you're going to be able to, you know, catch them along that, like the half wall and then, you know, cause a, 
uh, turnover and then go up ice and next thing you know you're generating goals and then I think that's like the biggest thing that's lacking in the NHL um, outside of generating offense at five versus five is not having those opportunities to kind of do that so you you deploy a really aggressive penalty kill and I know you mentioned it previously three forwards and one defenseman yep. might be an option or you know to Jack's point recently you know the discussion point of total hockey you know, we might get four just, forwards at the right. right. Yeah. And just see what's going to happen because you're going to be so much more mobile and you're going to be able to do a lot more with those guys rather than, you know, two defensemen. Just four, just four players without a job description. That would be great. Um, do, what do you guys think about this idea? They're like, because obviously there aren't really any more penalty kill specialists, I feel like. I feel like as you mentioned it's kind of being like phased out. Like you kind of just need to be good at hockey to be good at the penalty kill. But I thought an interesting thing was like it seems like, I don't know, it might just be anecdotal, but a, a lot of these kind of like smaller, shiftier players are much more effective on the penalty kill. Maybe just they can, I don't know, just hound the puck carriers more. or, or I, I don't know what it is, but it seems like, you know, these prototypical just big lumbering guys just aren't as successful as you might think on the penalty kill. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're when you're talking about guys who are who are shifty, who are fast, who can close down space, uh, Mike is sitting right behind me, and and I'm thinking of uh, think of, of Eric Condra, for instance. You know, a guy who was very fast, got good hockey sense, cannot shoot the puck. So why not throw him out there? You know, the penalty kill all the time because if you throw him out on five on five, he's not going to help you offensively, but he is going to help you. You know, hound the puck, kill time. Yep. on the PK. Yeah, it's. Uh... It seems like just keeping the puck in the other end of the ice would probably be a, a pretty sound penalty kill strategy, but teams are just reluct- like are just content just sitting back and trying to block as many shots as possible. Yeah, it's so bizarre that like the penalty kill stuff is like a game within a game, and then you're just managing time and mental fatigue and physical fatigue, and it's like, why don't you have like a Paul Byron out there and Eric Condra and these guys that are just going to wear you down, and you're eventually... like probably anecdotal evidence as well, but like, it would make sense that if you're wearing out the power play and keeping the puck away from them and forcing them to try and get it back from you, they're not going to, I mean, obviously they're not going to generate anything if they don't have the puck. Right. But, you know, if you're not only that, but just like disrupting the neutral zone as well, like on dump outs and icings and things like that, like I'm sure Jack could speak to that a bit more, like how yeah, much like, more effective it is. Um, just to kind of defend, I guess, um, the coaches out there or, you know, the, the ones who are, who are doing this at a very high level. Um, you know, at McGill, like our coaching staff in pregame meetings, I'd say we like we would spend as much time talking about how to prevent exits and entries on the PK than how to play in zone. Right. Um, you know, we talk about trigger points. So trigger points are moments where you want to attack the power play aggressively. Right. So a trigger point could be, you know, if you're behind the net breaking out, you want to kind of force them to stay there as long as you can. Mm-hmm. Or when they're carrying the puck on entry. You know, you want to outman them at the blue line and cause a turnover or make them go offside or, you know, or worst case, they dump it in and then you get, you know, you, you gain possession. Right. right. Or uh, another trigger point is once they're in your zone, but they bobble the puck or they miss a pass or, you know, they have their numbers too. So, you know, those are moments that you can attack the puck carrier and get the puck back. So I think uh, coaches were really update on, you know, how modern hockey is played. Like they're very much aware of that. So, so it's something that you'll see more and more of. Yeah, I think that just kind of taking the power play out of its comfort zone and just making them maybe try to do something that they're like, you know, I imagine that a lot of these power plays probably have this like ideal uh, set of how they like for the sequence to go to result in the and then in the back of the net. But so if you can just kind of make them maybe go to a second or a third or a fourth option, all of a sudden you're at least making some sort of progress. Yeah, 
That's, that's the dream. And I mean, I think the most exciting games you have out there when is when you have a penalty kill out there that's forcing the power play to just do like everything in their power and they can't get anything to work. And, you know, you're they're taking advantage of literally every option that they have. That's mm-hmm. what I really like about the Canes penalty kill, especially. Yeah, yeah, no, they, uh, I don't know if they still have, I haven't checked recently, but I know at the start of the year that they were like kind of going at like a historically great rate. I think they, like, at five, uh, four versus five, I think they're still like the top team at Corsi against, uh, Fenwick against, yeah. shot, and I expect goals as well, like they're just crushing it. Um, Jack, you, I've, I've always been curious about this, and maybe you can, uh, enlighten me a little bit as uh, someone who works for a coaching staff when you say something like hockey sense what are you actually talking about do you even know what it is or is it just something I mean, that like I, people just throw it around and it's not an actual thing like i try to avoid the expression just because um i don't trust my interpretation of it as much as the coaches like i would give them um more concrete measures like mm-hmm. you know this player is good at influencing controlled exits or influencing controlled entries or you know, influencing opposing failed exits. Um, you know, so hockey sense could be just uh, a, an ability to do something in a very narrow sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like a whole lot of nothing, honestly. <laughs> no, I mean, like, there's definitely something there. Like, it's not. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it's, it's maybe just, it's one of those things like you know it when you see it. Yeah, like you can uh, not know how to skate backwards. You can be very slow. You can not know how to shoot. You can you know, look very kind of sluggish, but you can be a very smart player and, you know, be able to close down space or to open up space with the puck and still be effective. Right. So it's definitely a distinct skill, but what it is, you know, you have to define it. Okay. So let's say, you know, you're working with your team and you want to make some sort of radical uh, schematic shift to your game plan. Like, let's say you decided to use three forwards and one defenseman on the the penalty kill. Do you think that's something you could accomplish in season or was that something that maybe you'd have to do in the preseason during exhibition games during training camp? Because it's such a kind of fundamental shift from how the players are used to playing. Well, like. Like two more radical deployment things that we do is we play five fours on our first power play and we mm-hmm. play seven Ds. Okay. And those are things that, you know, we've, as a staff, we've been talking about for a while. Because like last year, for instance, we knew with our um, freshman class coming in, we have 10 freshman players this year, that we wouldn't necessarily have a defenseman who's going to be able to, to play point on, on a first power play. So we were mentally prepared to the, you know, idea of playing five fours and we kind of, you know, bounced ideas around the summer, and then we kind of finally got around to it in preseason. And, you know, same thing with 7Ds. Like, we find that with the style that we play, which is very up-tempo, very, um, we, we place a lot of demands on our defensemen to to support the play and to, to move the puck quickly. Having seven out there is, you know, is a big edge for us. All right, guys. Well, uh, we're going to take a little break here and, and switch up the uh, musical chairs we got going on and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. All right, so all of a sudden we got a got a new cast. Uh, Micah, Michael Blake McCurdy and Chris Watkins. Hello, thank you. How's it going, guys? Um, what do you guys want to talk about? Uh, about how much more handsome we are than the people you had on. <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely more handsome than the first two guys. Um, let's. I don't know, Micah. You're not. Are you presenting this? this I am. As well? I am. What are you What are you doing on? Uh, I'm. Trying to just do your pressure thing again, hoping people from last year don't the, remember. So pressure features again. Uh, okay. I which at first I was nervous because I I'm going to repeat some of the stuff I talked about last year, but then I decided to tell myself that it was actually good. That 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 meant that the research I did last year wasn't completely a waste of time. <laughs> right. 
Um, but I'm talking about score effects, trying to figure out why why teams play worse when they're leading and why they play better when they're trailing, mm. and and the the specific detail that's better than last year, that's better than than what I've done before is is incorporating that pressure that I talked about about incorporating the time on the clock in addition to the to the score. And so, did you come up with any? It's a little better. Can you? Can yeah? Not really. Just a tiny bit better. Uh, it's the. It doesn't lend itself very well to sound bites, which is a bit unfortunate. But the <laughs> the the point is that it's theoretically quite a bit stronger. That that the numerically it comes out to be the same thing, right? As what we had before. So there's nothing there's nothing to make you say, oh god, you know, it's so much better than before. But when you look at the pieces that go into the model, it's much more satisfying. So, you know, this looks like it matches up closely with what we actually watch. Right. Rather than something, it's a little less artificial. So I'm happy with it for that reason, but it's not super groundbreaking stuff. So do you think it's, do you think like the concept of score effects or the stuff you're looking at is purely just like on a psychological level where people just, it's human nature to kind of let up if you're, if you're leading? I, I think there's, so one of the details that I did work at that is new and that you'll have to hear the talk to understand the, the background for is that I think home and away teams feed into it more in a more detailed way than I realized. Mm. So score effects don't affect the home team and the away team the same. The, that's, so in some sense, score effects are part of what makes home ice advantage what it is. Right. The, but, but also I, another aspect is that I find that it, that it does appear to be a more reasonable psychological take on the incentives that teams are offered. You know, given what you are offered in terms of the score system, teams are behaving in a way which is more sensible than I previously thought. Right. You know, on the face of it, score effects look look really counterintuitive. You know, that 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 teams suddenly find this extra gear when they're losing. You know, if they if they were doing things optimally, you would think that they would do that all the time. Right. They wouldn't wait until they were losing to play their best hockey. Or or conversely, if you look at it from the other point of view, they wouldn't suddenly start playing badly just because they were winning. Yeah. Uh, and w- but when you look at the incentives that the time and that the score gives the teams in terms of the point system, then you see that they're behaving a little bit more rationally than than it first appeared. So that's part of why it's not so impressive is because it's not there's less surprise now than there was before, um, which is unfortunate from, a, you know, if you're trying to make a splash at a conference, but it feels good in the sense that I feel like I understand what's going on better. Right. It's funny. You still, you still talk to people sometimes. They're like, yeah, I'm, I'm watching this game and I don't know why, but all of a sudden this team just started playing so much better when they were down for nothing. And it's like, I can think of a few reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, wouldn't have anything to do with the, uh, terrible players that are suddenly coming over yes, the ice for yes, the other team yes. now that they're up for nothing. Yeah. Um, all right, Chris, what do you, what do you, what do you present it on this weekend? Uh, yeah. So I'm presenting on, uh, this concept of, uh, opponent weighted Corsi. Right. Um, uh, and actually just recently, uh, partially thanks to Micah, um, it's opponent weighted, uh, expected goals. And I added some score effects in there, um, based on, uh, Michael's model right. on his site. Uh, so I, I added some juice to it. You know, I realized I, I created it a couple of years ago. Um, really, it was in response to Brian Elliott's crazy 2011-2012 uh, season where he had like a 940 save percentage. And I'm yeah. like, there's no way in hell Brian Elliott's this, this good. And plus, I hate the Blues anyway. Um, so I went <laughs> and looked at every team that the Blues played against that year and, and saw, you know, what... You know what? What I would expect them to uh, score, and then you know how they scored against Brian Elliott. And right. 
uh, sort of manifested from that. Um, so really looking at how teams perform, you know, against the other, you know, top teams, you know, it's different for the Blackhawks to, you know, you know, outshoot the Coyotes 50 to 15. Right. But when they do it to the Kings, well, okay, that's, there's something there. So I'm really trying to look into that, see if there's any predictive value to that. Um, does that really make a difference? Um, the score effects thing actually, I think was uh, very enlightening and mm-hmm. actually helped make it more predictive than right. it was before. Um, but uh, really, really doing a deep dive into that. Give me a little spoiler. Is it is it is it predictive? Is it? Uh, it, it, it it is and it isn't. Um, so <laughs> so I guess the so like every other talk ad, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very uh, independent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to uh, slice it in certain ways, uh, so for example, the the top two teams in this. Uh, uh, Knox, right? Is, is yep. What I labeled it. Um, top two teams last year were were the Sharks and, and the Penguins. Um, and so actually, that seems like yeah, two yeah, pretty yeah. good teams. Well, yeah, and so and so there was a prediction contest last year, and, and like dang it, had I known that, I'd have, I'd have mm-hmm. flipped it, I'd have flipped that. But uh, it was a little bit outdated at the time, so I didn't see that. Um, but um, sort of identifying, um, it, it really does sort of lead you to really understand who were the top teams in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. You know, is it more predictive than you know traditional score adjusted Corsi or something like that? Um, yes and no. Right. Um, really, on the defensive side is where you really see uh, a lot of that, and especially carryover, carryover from year to year. I think uh, uh, defensive effects, especially from coaching, uh, is more repeatable mm-hmm. than sort of the offensive side. And so you really see that carryover. Right. Um, but as a whole, it's probably in line with the other uh, predictive stats out there. Yeah, I mean, I think that you'd like to think that over the course of an 82-game season, stuff would even out. But yeah. obviously, I mean, you guys would both probably agree that there's, like, a bit deeper nuance <laughs> in terms of, like, st- I feel like strength of schedule isn't something we really account for probably as much as we should. No, we definitely don't. And it's, you know, you you want to say stuff like, oh, over 82 games, you know, this stuff evens out. But some stuff just doesn't. Hmm. And, you know, like, and nobody, there's no... Like nobody's saying, oh, you know, we should extend the season to 100 games. To Absolutely, 150 games. no one is saying. <laughs> no, it's like in, in <laughs> you know, you like if you work out some formula and you say, okay, this is you know, we can rely on these results to some confidence interval if we only had 90 or 100 games. You know that, like, if that's what you get from some calculation, that's what you get. And and if you want some stat to average out to come out of the wash because it's random you know in 80 games that's nice but it might and it might not right so you you know that's part of why you know if you look at different at different sports is why it's great to look at different sports you know baseball has a tremendous amount of streakiness in it but then they play a huge number of games right so you can't win a pennant you know on being good fortune like you have to like you have to win a pile of games but I love the idea of like the wild card game, and then it's like we played 162, <laughs> but then we're gonna play one to figure it all out. Well, and but you know, hockey people, hockey fans, sort of spiritually, if you like, are the same as this. Yeah, you know, you can you can have a dominant regular season performance. You can put up 145 points, <laughs> and then if you get knocked out on some crazy game seven nonsense, people are gonna say, "Oh, well, you're clearly chokers." Yeah, and you if know, you're Bruce Boudreaux, you get fired multiple we, times. <laughs> we we do this as hockey fans, where we just say, you know, this one game, these two games, these however many games, you know, are clearly what are the important in the hundred or fifty-ish games, whatever that came before, are meaningless. Right? right. We it's not quite as bad as baseball in that sense, but we do that. And and every time you do something that's less fun, you do something that's more rigorous, and vice versa. 
So you can, you know, you can say we're going to be, we're going to be completely mathematically honest. We're going to make everybody play 15 game playoff series, you know, and we're going to bore the tears out of everybody. You know, or you can say, who cares? One game. I don't care if you've had one day of rest and you've had six. You know, round two, fight. Go. Yeah. Like, you know, that's great for fans and, and statisticians will cry, but fine. You know, so you have to pick who it is you're going to please mm. when you make those choices. Yeah. We're, I mean... Am I? I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but we're at the point of the schedule here where uh, it's 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 getting to be a grind. Like I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I keep waiting for the first round of the playoffs, but uh, well, and, and this is where Michael comes in with his uh, goal plan. You know, for the tanking, we make the games yes. at the end of the season mean you know meaningful. You know, right. you got teams fighting for playoff positioning, but you got you know Arizona's basically mailed it in. You know, months ago, uh, you got. Uh, Colorado is, is is a tire fire. They mailed right it now. in like on October thirty first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so you have three point games. You have all these incentives in place to not put forth the most competitive hockey. Mm-hmm. And as obviously with the GM meeting that just recently concluded, no one put that as a priority to make games interesting all year long. Right. Uh, and there's really no incentive for fans that are in that sort of no man's land of we're not really tanking, but we're not really competing either. So we'll just sort of hold the fort. Uh, you know, not get rid of Cam Ward if you're Carolina or something like that, and and really make a move one way or the other to to make the games more interesting for fans overall, and just hurts the product. And you see this in comparison to other leagues where you know uh, NCAA has March Madness coming up, and, yeah. You know, it's completely randomness or whatever that everyone's looking forward to. Yeah. Um, but that's something that gives people you know reason to watch and, and really get invested in these games going forward. Yeah. Yeah, and the the I mean, all of that is true. And in addition to that, you also have the schedule, which this year, because of bye weeks especially, is unusually compressed at the end. The tonight, the I forget which game it is, but one of the games tonight is the third last this year between two teams that both have two days of rest. There are, if you want games where both teams have had more than one day of rest, there are three more in the entire season, and one of them is tonight. And how many, what is there, like another month or so in the season? Pretty much. Yeah, no, a month yesterday. So oh, there's another that. month of the regular season? I, yeah. And, and so as we get towards the end of the game, every single Metropolitan team ends the season on a back-to-back. The, and six-eighths of the Atlantic Division, too. And so the, the schedule is getting really grindy as well. So, in a, so not only, just like Chris said, not only do you have all these bad incentives, or sort of mixed incentives, where... Where it's not really, you know, you have to put something on the ice to get fans in seats, but you also don't really have any particular reason to put your best guys on the ice. And also, everybody's tired and possibly hurt. You know, put that together with the extremely conservative culture you have. You know, you, you get this weird middle ground product, which doesn't really... And, I mean, if you're the New York Rangers, you're, <laughs> you're one of the best teams in the league, but you're actively <laughs> also trying to lose games at the same time, and it's like... No, well, no one's talking about this for some reason. It's like the weirdest story going on in sports right now. Well, and you get the opposite incentive too. You know, it's bad for the Rangers who who are going to take a wild card spot with more than a hundred points. Yeah. <laughs> but also, you know, what if you're the Senators, for instance, and you're on a push? You know, you're going to take over right now. You get the Bruins at home <laughs> if you're second in the Atlantic, or you could win a couple more games and take the Atlantic from the Habs, and your 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 reward is. The considerably stronger Rangers. Yeah, you know the, the incentives are bad for them too. So the you know perverse incentives are are all over the the whole structure. Well, I know we talked about this uh, when we did a show together. I think it was like our Christmas wish list. But one of mine was I'd love to see just 
teams seated one to 16 and then we just hold a uh, like a national tv thing like a week before and you know, the first the first seed goes up and picks who they play and, and so on and so forth Ooh, travis i think suggested do something like this and then i found out apparently they were doing that in sweden for a few years and i was like yeah of course was it good i from what i gathered the first few years were just electrifying everyone was like oh there's all these stories like nobody believes in us and like you know there's, there's all these side plots they made it super interesting but then after a while of course it's kind of human nature to just like be like we, we want something else this is boring so i mean that that like all sorts of fun you know new things aren't fun anymore when they're not new <laughs> but uh but i have to say i i like the idea of letting people choose the uh especially you know any televising peripheral stuff if you like you know the draft the you know, expansion drafts. This is what we're going to do for the playoff seating, the all-star game, like all that extra stuff. There's a whole, a whole swath of fans who would love to get into extra stuff like mm. that. You know, I'm, I, it's weird. I, I advocate for this stuff just because I like other fans, even though personally I pay no attention. <laughs> like I, I don't even watch intermission shows. Like I, I watch hockey when the people are on the ice. Yeah. Like, and when they go to commercial, I flick channels. Like I don't, don't watch hockey except for hockey mm-hmm. sort of but there are plenty of people who you know they want to see phil kessel and his cat and they want to see <laughs> like like every every like you know all of those little details if that's how you're a fan if that's how you engage you know i'm, I'm putting out statistical work which is not for all fans and some fans love it but whatever level gets you in and for some people that kind of like sort of soap opera-esque Oh, they picked the Caps, how dare they? <laughs> you know, if that's what gets you in, the league should be all over that. That's fantastic. And, and you see this a lot in the other sports. Uh, I'm a big NBA fan, and, and uh, my girlfriend and I were talking about, you know, Aisha Curry mm-hmm. and Riley Curry, who are not basketball players whatsoever, but, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, everyone, and right. their mom knows They may them. as well be. Yeah, so I, I don't pay attention to basketball at all, but I know about Aisha and Riley Curry. Yeah, who's as, Stephen Curry? As, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they're adorable people. They have these great stories. You always see them at the press conferences and stuff. I don't, I don't even watch the sport, and I like that stuff. And, and, and that's the thing where, especially during free agency season, I get very frustrated. You see guys like Jacob Trua just automatically taking off the market for below value deals, and it's right. like, it'd be great to speculate where, you know, Stephen Stamphouse is going, you know, you know, July 8th or whatever versus, oh, yeah, you signed a not $8 million contract with Tampa Bay. Ooh, okay, great. That's great for Tampa Bay, but for the rest of the league, right. you know, you see NFL's in the free agency market right now and people are speculating all these marginal players, really, because no one good gets to the market. But there's just a lot of interest and intrigue around it. Right. Um, uh, the trade season with the NBA recently, um, you see a big guy like DeMarcus Cousins getting traded. Uh, I, it feels like the NHL purposely suppresses any information or in, uh, interest like that. And it really limits the sort of uh, watchability of the league outside of the games. Well, I, th- I think that topic really uh, came up earlier this week when the potential for uh, the league not releasing who's being protected <laughs> for the expansion draft came up. And I don't know, just like I, I raised this question to someone, but it's like this hockey by nature is an, everyone would agree is an ex- exceptional sport, right? It's like so fun. It's. At its best, if you're watching two good teams that are going back and forth, especially like in the playoffs, it's like possibilities are endless. Like, this is amazing. You're just sitting on the edge of your seat the entire time. But the NHL, for whatever reason, as a league, just seems like to be going out of its way to just suppress any possible fun. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So, sorry. Uh, so my my theory, my conspiracy theory I have is when uh, Gary Bettman was named the uh, NHL commissioner, in, I guess, in 94, mm-hmm. uh, I believe he worked for the NBA originally. Right. And... 
a lot of stories at the time where the Rangers were showing on the upswing. A lot of the stories at the time were, was that the NHL was, you know, in the process of overtaking the NBA. And I think David Stern, <laughs> the former commissioner. That means a sleeper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's like, here's the worst person possible to help you grow and make the game exciting. Let me let me just sabotage everything. And, and, and it seems that played out because you look at the role of the commissioners to make to grow the revenues and make the game more exciting. And revenues yeah. have been flat for who knows how long. And, and, and now you're not really seeing the game grow in the way that a lot of other sports are embracing right now. So yep. it's, you know, how, you know, why is that? Why would you purposely... Right now, David Stern's, like, sitting at home retired. He's like, oh, yeah, I <laughs> forgot to pull that operation. <laughs> I think part of... It, it, it's curious what you mentioned. Part of the the trouble, if if that's the word I want, about the way the league markets it, is that they they seem to be focused entirely on the on-ice product. Mm-hmm. And, and there are things you could do to improve the on-ice product, and I... I'm, you know, I'm constantly throwing out bizarre ideas like, you know, penalize goalies for freezing the puck and, and all sorts of other, you know, things that I think would make the on-ice product better. But I, I still, even as it is, I still like the on-ice product. Right. And, and the league, I think, is fixated entirely on the on-ice product. And they don't, they don't have any kind of strategy outside of that. You know, nothing, nothing of the, like, we're going to have... You know, press conferences with any kind of fun, with any kind of external, like no meta other stuff. Right. And and one of the one of the things that they've been slow to learn is that other people, you know, like all of us in the room, are picking up little bits and bobs and turning them into interesting things. And if you know, some of us are making full time jobs out of out of stuff with NHL data that the NHL isn't bothering to do. Mm. You know that they that they're in a position to do much much better. But that they just aren't doing, like, you know. So there's this old joke that that you can get wealthy just by standing around near rich people and waiting for money to fall off. You know, it's it's almost like that where there's so much data, there's so much good stuff, but the league is doing so little right with it that that if you just gather it up and put it together in a way that's sensible, you know, there's a market for that. Are you implying that HockeyViz.com is a superior product to NHL.com? Uh, I'm where you might what, what percentage of what percentage of playoff series can you predict, and is it over or under eighty five percent? It is at least eighty six percent. And I wouldn't imply that the product I put out myself is better than the NHL. I will tell you. I would, I would imply that. It is considered. I will tell you it is better. Yes. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I think another issue the league really faces is like it. I mean, it just needs to work on, like, marketing its its stars, right? Like, I think that... I, f- I find the excuse that people in the States don't care about hockey just com- be completely bogus because the league is just, like, not doing anything to actually get those people into mainstream attention. I mean, and, and a perfect example of this, uh, you guys will know I'm an African-American guy from Chicago, mm-hmm. and, you know, the games in Chicago weren't aired for... Until 2009. Right. So there was no... Yeah. I didn't know this. Because I'm Canadian, I assumed that, that every local game was aired incredibly yeah. well in every city. And when I, I learned about this a few years back, and I thought, this is crazy. But... So what are people doing? Either going to the game or just watch, like, yeah, reading well, the newspaper? Bill, like, the, Bill Wurst's philosophy was if they're not coming, you know, coming to the game and paying, you know, full price for the tickets, they just don't deserve to watch. <laughs> and it's not like he had great products, you know, at the time. Right, right. Uh, you remember pre-Taves and pre-Kane Blackhawks. Yeah. 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 It uh, wasn't really all that sexy to begin with. Um, the the Brian Smolinski era. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Brett Sopel era. Uh, hey. 
you know, I, I, I was in Atlanta when the Thrashers were there, and there was literally no outlets whatsoever to really embrace, you know, that market, you know, which is prim- uh, primarily African American. Um, you see this with even with the Josh Hussain controversy this week, yeah. uh, PK Subban last year, yeah. and even this year, where they're. Uh, I'm utterly convinced that. Uh, 20 years from now, I believe the NHL will be the first league to have a, a woman uh, player mm-hmm. uh, and, and a star uh, woman player. But it's like the league's going out of their way to make sure that never happens because they don't have a, a sustained marketing plan towards women that doesn't require them pinkifying everything. Like, how do you make the game more exciting to people who aren't fully invested in it from day one? And I don't think they have really... As Michael said, it's really the on-ice product that they focus on. Well, I mean, this is what happens when a lot of old, out-of-touch white guys are responsible for important decisions. <laughs> well, and of course, like, I can see the people say, you know, it's not, like, the NHL doesn't market its stars, and they don't. And the game is not, is not as star-driven as some other games. Right. You know, it's not, like, it's not like basketball, where if you have a couple of guys who are amazing, you know, you can just wipe the floor with other teams. You, you haven't do. watched any Edmonton Oilers games. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, so Oilers are the, the exception that proves but, but, that rule. But, but I'll jump in. With, uh, I'll jump in on that real quick. Uh, soccer is probably even less yep. star driven than. Right, but they marketed as star driven. Exactly. exactly. You know, right you, Paul Pogba. You know, Lionel Messi. Yep. Uh, he's on a super team, and you know, to be honest, like you know, he's probably outsized influence on that team. But for the most part, most of those guys aren't really doing much more than uh, a Jamie Banner is doing or so on and so yeah. forth. But they know how to market those guys and yeah. make them sexy outside of the sport. Plus. Yeah, and, and how you present a guy for marketing is not the same, and it shouldn't be the same, as how his coach deploys him and how much his GM knows <laughs> he impacts wins. You know, those are three totally different roles, and you should look at them differently. And if you're marketing them, you shouldn't be under some compunction. So why I brought it up you know, it's true that, that stars don't influence on-ice results the same way in the NHL. But, but the reason I brought it up is that that doesn't have to be the way that determines how you market players. Yeah. You know, there's always a disconnect between who you choose to promote. That's part of why it's frustrating to see the league promote players that, who, who, are, who are terrible choices to promote. Yeah, Patrick. Without naming too many names. You know, is, is because you don't have to take your cues. From, oh, you know, this person per- single-handedly won a playoff series. Literally no team, no player has ever done this. Mm. You know, even goalies who, you know, people talk about Halak taking playoff series away from the Capitals. You know, and it's great to rub salt in the wounds of people if you want to do that on Twitter. But, but single players don't have that impact. But they do have that marketing impact. Right. And, and, and you know, you mentioned Josh Hosang and P.K. Subban. Those are perfect examples of guys who ought to be, you know, Bright lights marketed. Yeah. Subban, I mean, Josh was saying he's a prospect. He's young. He's, you know, if you want to sell fun and hope, that's one thing. But PK Subban is an established superstar. He should yeah. be, he should be a fantastic, you know, face of the league mm-hmm. all over the place. And instead, he's, you know, character issues. <laughs> yeah. People, you read the same stories about how you know the house were good to trade him, but also here he is getting a meritorious service award from the government <laughs> in the same weekend. You know, that stuff happens all the time, and it's infuriating. Yeah. Um, okay, one final thing before we get out of here. Chris, while I have you here, we got to talk about this article you wrote a while back about uh, oh. <laughs> instituting the three-point line on the ice because obviously, you know, this is something that's like kind of like a half-baked idea that's never going to happen, but I'm always all for just hearing out of, out, outside-the-box ideas yeah. that'll make the NHL product more viewer-friendly. And um, I don't know, just want to lay the scene a bit for it? Yeah, uh, so basically the thought process was, uh, you know, 
everybody's talking about increasing scoring and uh, I think Travis and Sean McIndoe, uh, Travis Jones and Sean McIndoe <laughs> specifically call out that all of these are very incremental, you know, 0.1% uh, movements, you know, increase the size of the nets a little bit, right. uh, you know, have the home team have last change on the face off. Like those things will not really impact. Uh, yeah, like they just like they just said in the GM meetings, where now you can't call timeouts after ice. Yeah, that's which is that's I mean, fine. Was, all was, the wait, year. Wait, yeah, yeah. Right, wait, it's nothing. Was, was that an issue that people were actually no. upset about? No, <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, and, and, and so the proposal was, yeah, just basically build a arc about 40, uh, uh, 40 feet around the mm-hmm. uh, the goal mouth. Right. Um, and those goals are worth two points. If yeah. you shoot a slap shot from behind the arc. It's two, it's two points. Um, so, you know, if you're down in the game and you're down, you know, 2-0, yeah. you start bombing away from from the blue line and, and see what happens. And, yeah, right. and, and if you get a one-goal rebound off of that, then yeah. that's so much the better, and then you'll just try for one more. Yeah, and, and so uh, and the article is like, you know, uh, can Shea Weber be the Steph, uh, the Steph Curry uh, right. <laughs> uh, of in the NHL where he's just bombing away and just, you know, making these ridiculous shots from, you know, the red line or whatever. Right. Um, I, and I was playing around with it, you know, obviously it's a, it's a sort of hypothetical exercise, but when I looked at the numbers, I saw a 10% increase and scoring if you have a, a, a line uh, right in front of the blue line mm-hmm. and a 15% increase in scoring if you have this arc. Uh, so just like, you know, a fun way to approach it and just think about out-of-the-box ideas of how you make this already great and exciting game even more great and exciting. Yeah. This will never happen, yeah. but it, it's great to put something like that out there and sort of push the needle. Um, yeah. I, I, I like it. I mean, just purely from a sort of like a strategical perspective, <laughs> like if a team is down, like yeah. what, what are they going to Trying well, to do if they're just shooting from everywhere, or if they're actually trying to improve their quote unquote shot quality. And the other thing too, of course, is that if you make changes like that, you know, you're going to have those immediate changes, like you were saying. You know, I'm down two. I need two goals. This yeah. is worth two goals. Let's do that. Yeah. But also, that's going to become part of the day to day play. And you know, all of a sudden, you can't just leave a guy sitting at the point with a clear shot because it's not just a goal you're giving up. It's two goals. So now you have to guard him more closely. Now your gaps are all wrong. Now the guys are uncovered underneath. You know, and now the like you. Every time you, you introduce new rules like that, you introduce new complexities. And sometimes you find things like, and coaches will find them. You know, <laughs> oh, look, they made the game worse in a way that we didn't anticipate. That sucks. But other times you find these new excitements where you're like, oh, because of that threat, that opens up this other thing and you get all sorts of new stuff. I mean, it, it's one of those things you think of a guy like Alan Guinness, you know, if that yeah. was ever instituted. That guy was scoring 500 goals you know, mm-hmm. a year or whatever. Uh, it, it allows for more flexibility in terms of you know, player development, player types. Um, you, you bring the big uglies back in that can bomb from the from the blue line. Uh, those guys are kind of out of fashion now, but yeah. now you have an incentive to bring them back in. So, you know, forces the coaches to actually, you know, coach, which is great instead of just, you know, being conservative, dump the puck in, you know, we'll figure it out later. You know, there's some new nuance to the strategy. Do you screen and potentially deflect the shot that was worth two goals? Yeah, uh, you just know, get out of yeah it's like, what are you doing? And, you know, Chris Russell all of a sudden becomes, you know, a Norris Trophy winner because he's blocking. He's like, you know, the, the possibilities are endless. And I, and I illustrate them in an the article. But, you know, it, once again, it's just one of those things where you just think about crazy, fun, somewhat practical ways to just really impact the game, make it better and uh, more fun product going forward. Yeah, that's a good rule in general. Anytime, anytime you want to try to fix something, the, like the, the, the specific point you got to target is, is there something that everybody does? Yeah. Then how can we make it so that they only do that some of the time and so that they choose to do that in, when they should and choose not to do it other times? That's like, you know, screening goalies is a great example. You know, if, if, like you say, people say all the time, it's not quite true, but they still say, 
you, know, you can't score on clean looks anymore in the NHL. You have to, you know, you have to scream goalies. You have to get tips. Mm -hmm. you know, supposing that were completely true, you know, then the way that you, if you were like on a competition committee, the way that you should look at that is you should say, how can we make people not want to screen every time? Right. How can we give them incentives to, to do something different? And this is, you know, I, like I agree, I don't think it'll ever happen, but but it has that that angle where it where it takes away not just it doesn't just have some sort of knock on effect. It takes away people's reason to want to do those things. Well, and think about it this way: I, so there are obviously a segment of the fan base that is like to, is okay with complete chaos and they <laughs> support this, and then a large segment of the fan base that would be against it is probably the people that really want to see Chris Russell be a superstar. So maybe if you found, if you found a metric where he actually helped influence the game for once, uh, maybe uh, they'd sign they, on as well. And all of a sudden we got a, we got a voting majority. David Staples would lose his mind. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, there's, there's an element of any sport whatsoever. And, and I, I think hockey does get a bad rap on, uh, it's very conservative nature. NFL is probably just as bad, but mm -hmm. it's a super popular product. So right. it is, it doesn't have the need to, it's like, you know, Google versus a startup. The startup has to be more innovative to sort of keep up with the Googles of the world right. and NFL's Google right now. Um, so how do you like identify ways? Maybe it's not the, uh, the two-point line, but maybe it's something else that can really you know, make the game better overall for everyone um, and really introduce some new fans. All right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to come chat and enjoy the rest of the conference. No worries. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.